meer geld komt, zodat de werkdruk van leraren omlaag kan. Vandaag staakten leraren van zo'n 4300 scholen omdat ze de toezegging van eenmalig 460 miljoen euro onvoldoende vinden. D66 en GroenLinks proberen intussen dit eenmalige bedrag structureel te maken, ook na deze kabinetsperiode. Daarvoor moet de Kamer wel in meerderheid voor een motie van GroenLinks-Kamerlid Lisa Westerveld stemmen. In een vrachtwagen in de haven van IJmuiden heeft de Marechaussee vanochtend 16 mensen levend en wel aangetroffen. Het gaat om één vrouw, elf mannen en vier minderjarige jongens met diverse nationaliteiten. De Turkse chauffeur meldde bij de veerboot naar het Engelse Newcastle dat hij geluiden uit zijn trailer hoorde komen. Daarop werd de groep mensen ontdekt tussen een lading auto-onderdelen. De chauffeur is aangehouden op verdenking van mensensmokkel. En de zojuist afgezwaaide voorzitter van het Britse lagerhuis, John Burko, heeft in Londen in een lezing voor buitenlandse journalisten de Brexit de grootste vergissing van zijn land sinds de oorlog genoemd. Tijdens zijn voorzitterschap werd Burko over de Brexit door voorstanders al van vooringenomenheid beschuldigd. Maar hij ontkent ten stelligste dat hij de Brexit actief heeft geprobeerd te... ondanks dat Burko vindt dat Groot-Brittannië beter af is als onderdeel van het Europese blok. Het weer wisselend bewolkt met plaatselijk kans op regen in het noorden klaart het op met plaatselijk mist en het koelt vannacht af naar 2 tot 7 graden. Morgen trekt er een regengebied over en wordt het hooguit 9 graden. Tot zover het radionieuws. U luistert naar RTV Maastricht. Wednesday evenings from 6 until 7 on 107.5. Everything's alive 
Hello, 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 and welcome back to another episode of Student Radio Maastricht. So today in the studio we have me, Luna, Raphael, who's sitting right next to me, and Ruby in the tech. So sitting with us, we've got Alec from the V32, <laughs> <laughs> David from the Mandrill. <laughs> hello. He nodded. <laughs> he nodded to us here. And John and Albert from the LBV. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you so much. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. And uh, well, as you might already know by the names I've mentioned, or at least the, the squats that I've mentioned, the topic today is going to be, well, squats and how it's like to be in squats here in Maastricht specifically, um, what's going on right now, evictions, um, projects and so on. And to discuss this further, we've got here Rafa to introduce it a bit more. Hello, hello. That's me. <laughs> so squats, huh? Like I used to be. Moderator. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, operator online. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Alec. Um, squats, right? Um, as all, all of us know, like there's a bunch of them in Maastricht, but not only in Maastricht. Um, Netherlands used to be one of the countries that actually was quite supportive of the idea, but that was until 2010, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, that's when the legislation passed. Like, bas basically, it made squatting illegal. But like, while preparing for the topic, of course, we don't have so much time. Um, so we are going to focus mostly on Maastricht and Netherlands. But um, there will be some um, some other things mentioned from from other countries too. Like, for example, Christiania, which is which some of you may or may not know yeah. already, which is a massive essentially a squatting district. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure what did you say there, but that's okay. <laughs> So we are going to talk like we are going to ask about your experiences from this course because you are involved in the scene. Um, you do organize mm -hmm. events there. Um, you know, people who are involved in the places. We are going to talk about how do they work. Um, and yes, as Luna mentioned, like we are going to see what the future brings, because right now it's very tumultuous, I believe, for all of you from for LBB, for Mandrill. I'm not sure about B32 because you guys disappeared from my radar, but I'm curious to... <laughs> it's a little bit in the, we disappeared from our own radar. We disappeared from our own radar, so oh, like, oh, it's a well little, then our own future is Hopefully we'll get back on track and we'll put you on everyone's radar again. Hopefully. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Got anything to add, Luna? Should I expand on... Because what is squatting? Like, to people who don't know what squatting is, it's essentially repurposing buildings that are not used by the owner at the point, at the moment. Um, there's different ways of squatting. You can squat to live in there. You can squat to organize a cultural space, something which we are also going to talk about. Um, what's the best uh, way of dealing with a place like this? Yeah. So I guess my first question here is, how did you end up in a squat? And before that, did you even know what a squat was before that first encounter? Or before you started living or being engaged within a squat environment? Um, let's go, I don't know, let's ask a LBB people and then B32 and then the Mandrill. Oh, I have to start, huh? <laughs> um, so that's Albert speaking. Yeah, that's me. Hi, I'm Albert. Um, I don't know how I ended up in the LBB. I just mm -hmm. woke up one day uh, living, realizing that this is a squad <laughs> um, without actually having any idea of what this means. <clears throat> what you notice is, I mean, it's all kind of self-made and and has a rather rough, rough uh, tone to it. Um, yeah, but I don't know. Actually, I, I used to go to this place a lot to, to check out all, all the events that they host. Mm. And then at a point never left. <laughs> it's, it's actually interesting because I know that LBB has like a super 
actually quite a strict policy for letting people live there. So yeah, so if I can talk a little bit yeah. more about that, so this is John. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I was um, I was planning on studying in in Maastricht at uh, Maastricht University, uh, international business uh, master's program, but then uh, a long way, huh? yeah, I was I was in uh, I was in Germany before uh, working. Uh, my background in education, um, and then uh, I arrived in Maastricht and I was couch surfing. Yeah. And I was looking for an apartment everywhere. And as you may all know, <laughs> looking for an apartment in Maastricht is quite the, quite the battle. Mm-hmm. Um, so of course I've, I enjoy the cultural and art scene, um, no matter where I am. And I heard a little bit about the land Babylon <laughs> and hearing about this, I was like, wow, what is happening here? And then I already have like these, these thoughts in my head as an American, right? Um, you hear this word squat, okay? And, and back in 2003, uh, the land Babylon, an old uh, industrial uh, grain storage uh, factory or building, mm-hmm. was, um, was squatted. People, people got in there. And uh, since then, it's developed into a vibrant uh, cultural and uh, event space. Um, but what I, I found was the food bank. And that was my first uh, time I was at the, at the Land Babylon. And this was really my entry point. Uh, food bank is a great place. They, they go to the, the market on the Friday and they take all this food that would normally be just thrown away. Mm. And, uh, and it's gathered by volunteers and it's brought to this beautiful space that has been renovated at the Land Babylon. And uh, these volunteers get together, you know, a group, maybe 10 volunteers, um, a smaller core team, of course. Um, but if you'd like to, to volunteer, of course you can come. Uh, anyone is welcome. Um, every Friday. Every Friday. Yep, that's right. Seven. What time do you gather? Uh, we we started at three. If you want to go to the to the market um, and and volunteer, that starts at three o'clock. Mm-hmm. And then uh, fruit, food prep goes after that, and the meal is about seven o'clock. So until the end yeah, because I always need help with the dishes. Everyone leaves. Yeah, so but to sum it up, you yeah, yeah, did yeah, yeah, know of Lamba Blanc before. Um, a bit, a bit, a yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah. But, but the food bank was really my my entry point, and uh, knowing how difficult it was to find uh, an apartment here, I was like, "Can I can I live here?" <laughs> you know, and and they're like, "Well," and this and this is where it gets um, yeah into the into the uh, logistics. Uh, so so it's a two month trial period, right? Anyone can show up. There is a, a meeting the first Sunday of the month in which uh, this is the housing group and you need to come in and say who you are and why you want to be there. So mm. I, uh, yeah, I just started living in the guest room and was helping out with all these events and mm. all the practical stuff. And then all of a sudden I was like, you know what? This is such an incredible experience. This is so much more practical than, <laughs> yeah, uh, a, a master's program, which is a hi- highly, th- uh, you know, yeah, okay. But uh, yeah, it's, it's the best... Um, Best opportunity I had, mm. and I'm living there now. And how is it for you, Alec? Um, uh. Yeah, so I guess yeah, my story is a little different. I first got into contact with squats like when I was like, 18, I think, and this was just like not younger, maybe even yeah, 17 or 18. And then that was just through friends. I had no idea what the fuck squatting was. I had no idea what was happening. I just knew my mates were like had these massive places, and we would go there and we would hang out, and it was fucking awesome. And I got into squatting or got and got into contact with it, got involved with it kind of as like a political act after moving. So this was actually, I grew up in Australia. So this, 
I grew up in Australia, so this was like while I was there. Um, and then I actually got into involved with it like more as a political action when I moved to the Netherlands and actually found out that what I always knew was just my mates going and living in empty houses because it was cool and you could have a space and you could paint the walls was like here this whole other thing where, you know, everything was about having freedom and being anti-authority and being anti like housing prices and this kind of thing. So, And how do you express this um, political understanding of squatting through your experiences here, for instance? I feel like through my experience in Maastricht? Yeah. Well, it's a very interesting topic because in Maastricht I kind of like retreated, I guess, from the political side of squatting in that sense, like still being in contact with people and involved in people, but in the sense of using squatting as a means of resistance that mm-hmm. was like here has not been so much of a thing also because i live in a place which i'm super lucky to live in which is really really steady at the moment we don't have hassles we don't have police showing up at our door we're mm-hmm. not being kicked out so that also like slows it down because mm-hmm. you stop actually squatting new places yeah, ironically that, enough <laughs> yeah that sounds a bit different from the situation the mandrel i see even uh, yeah the mandrel's an exception because it's mm-hmm. not actually a squad it was a squad from 2009 to 2014 mm-hmm. and it had a, a building on Bostrat which has been partially demolished now and incorporated into the musikiterai mm-hmm. so from 2014 squatting was already illegal in the netherlands since four years so they had to face a choice they could go and squat a new building illegally and face a high chance of getting evicted what they did instead was to sign a contract with EPAL, which is the company that manages properties on behalf of the Gemeente. Mm-hmm. So we have a contract that expires in three weeks. We've had it for five years. So, yeah, it's not a squat mm-hmm. at all. But the um, the philosophy of it and the ethos mm-hmm. is, is the same. It's how it, we run it the same way that it was when it was a squat. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we focus on a non-hierarchical organization, everything volunteer-run, everything donation-based. Mm-hmm. So I guess my question here is, so you've got one case, um, Big 32, which self-declares as a squat and uh, and goes by that. And you have the mandrel who also go, lives on a squat uh, um, mm. ideology maybe, but Terrible. not necessarily yeah. on paper. We would like to be a squat, yeah. but we're not. But yet, <laughs> but yet, we're, even though the mandrel has this on paper, you seem to be the ones that are on the on the line here, they're struggling the, the most. More more active side of the scale, let's say, as far as like representing that ideology as well, mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah. yeah. One of the reasons for that is because we knew from since one year or since five years actually we were going to get evicted, mm-hmm. and we wanted to give ourselves the be- best chance of getting an extension or getting offered a new building or something like mm-hmm. this, and we thought. If we increase our activities as much mm-hmm. as we, we put as much energy in as we can, that would give us the best chance. Would you yeah. say it was a bad idea to have signed that uh, agreement? Uh, I can't or say because I wasn't there at the time. You know, they, yeah. they went through a lot of discussions and conflict, and I, I, I really, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't say. But I think if they had squatted another place, they would have been evicted. So probably yes. If they wanted to. Just to keep it running, they probably did the best thing, I think. Yeah. I think they did. I was there, actually. Yeah. <laughs> like, I used to live in Montreal at that time, and I was going with them through... Well, I wasn't living in Montreal at the very moment, because there were, used to be two squads, like one next to another. Mm-hmm. There used to be Hotel Diosakop as well. Mm-hmm. And in our case, Diosakop, we did get evicted. Montreal, yes, if you ask whether was it was a better option or not. 
supposedly yes, because Osakop doesn't exist for five years. Manjul at least had this those five wonderful years to go. Um, it's still gonna persist, and now like all those all these people who wouldn't have heard of it, like at least got to know it. And yeah, we see what future brings for you, right? But yeah, it's always a tricky question yeah. about those things. I also think Alec. that. Oh yeah. I also think that since 2010, when this law came in making scoring illegal, it's been constantly a fight to mm. keep a place and to just have enough security so that you can live, let alone so you can make events or start any kind of, or start doing anything social. So in that sense, it's pushed squats so much more to actually legalize in that sense. And like, yeah, yeah. we had the same conversation actually this time round about whether we should squat another place. Some people wanted to do that. Some people wanted to resist, mm -hmm. and others wanted to I don't know try and cooperate with the the gemeente to mm -hmm. see if we could find another place. And the problem at the moment is the the policy of the day I think is that they any building that is squatted should be cleaned out within three days and I've been keeping an eye on what's been going on with squatting here locally in the last few months and it seems to get evicted very quickly within two weeks normally so yeah we have I, to take that into consideration I've got a friend who's been trying to squat for a couple of months now and every time they get into a new building they get evicted in a couple of days and they squat a new one get evicted in a couple of days yeah. and that keeps on going and going and going i don't know how they've got so much energy to yeah, keep it takes on. a lot of energy yeah, yeah. especially in winter especially in winter yeah have you guys have you guys had your share of winter in squat already yes <laughs> when uh when the last place that i lived in before i moved to maastricht it got evicted and actually we had like a meeting with the group who i was living with at the time and we decided to actually stay as a group and squat a new place Mm. and that was actually around the same time as now and that was fucking terrible so <laughs> we actually went into like a big massive like warehouse space which was cold cold <laughs> like amazing as far as potential went mm. but super shit as far as warmth or creature comforts goes it's like 24 hours a day like permanent occupation no heating no electricity yeah. it was fun <laughs> but it's but it's really nice you know it, it really helps you uh you know persevere through a lot of things uh it really helps you uh learn how to wear layers of clothes instead yeah. of instead of turning on the, <laughs> the heater you know instead of instead of yeah uh you know gathering in a in a common space instead of going to your room and turning on your individual heating yeah. uh yeah and just all just cuddling up and getting friendly you know so yeah. <laughs> Um, I've got a question related to something that you, John, mentioned a bit earlier, that uh, you were, as soon as you started, decided to live at the LBB, you kind of dropped out your studies. But I know Alec um, has been, uh, well, at least was studying at UCM while still being at the... I hold my shit down, man. I'm still studying. Yeah, I'm like, still. Studio, so fuck <laughs> <laughs> so Not I, really, I just failed one course. So <laughs> <laughs> it gets progressively worse the longer I spend in the institution. Yeah, same, same. But my question is, I think... <laughs> Um, why is it that you felt like dropping out or how do you can how do you combine studying and living in a squat and what that's living in a squat implies in terms of work mm. and what you do inside it yeah yeah so just to be clear uh, I, I did not officially start my master's program I was checking out the lectures and stuff and really got a feel for the IB program and <laughs> how many Germans there were in it. <laughs> um, no, I love Germany, actually. I, I, no lived, offense. I, lived, there, I lived there for a year before, uh, before going to Maastricht. Great, great country, great people. Uh, but, yeah, I, I needed to make a de decision. And like I said, uh, yeah, I, I, I studied uh, in, in Boston. And, uh, yeah, university is interesting, you know, it's, and it's really dependent on your, on your program. And I was like, okay, um, based on my experiences in the past, having like a highly theoretical or maybe even, you know, 
you know, a, a program at one of the, the a really well-ranked university. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was like, no, you know, no way. And, and guess what? The university is probably going to be here in a couple of years. You know, they're not going to get bulldozed anytime soon. So, mm-hmm. so I was like, what's actually going to happen with, with the land Babylon? You know, if, if on my radar is stories of multiple people telling me that all these other squats in the past or these uh, cultural initiatives in empty spaces have been told to move. Um, like I have friends, uh, an organization called Stas Nomad. And uh, they were in a, in a previous building before. And yeah. Yeah, that's it's, true. There was a lot of places shut down recently. But we were talking about the how those living in a squat encapsulate the other things you could be doing at university. Like, what, what do you get out of it? Like, what did you learn? Some practical skills? Did you mm. learn how to work with electricity? Yeah, like, absolutely. You know, and really. That was a lot of plumbing, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so. Yeah, networking, uh, nonprofit organizational management, you know, mm-hmm. like this is this is the best experience, you know. This is this is the, this is so practical. It's incredible, you know. Mm-hmm. And of course, when I first got to learn Babylon, uh, there are these uh, interesting talks, you know, with the uh, Kementa about okay, uh as, as you guys might know, the land Blanc is in a tender procedure and, and the Hamenta is trying to figure out the, the specific details of what this means. So, mm-hmm. so in two years, basically, this building is going to a public auction and all this stuff. So, so what I kind of happened... Fuckers. <laughs> what I... <laughs> <laughs> you, you, what what I kind of happened upon, right, was was these uh, meetings every every week at at the Rod Sal with politicians, with with people who have been working their ass off uh, the past ten years or more at the Lan Babalong, you know, trying to do what they yeah in in their vision what what you know they they can do, and so I find myself in all these meetings about really practical organizational matters mm-hmm. and building networks and seeing what it really takes to, to make something like this happen. And it, yeah, of course it takes a lot of work, but at the same time, yeah, I, I do work freelance here and I, and like I said, I have a lot of uh, experience in, in uh, education and stuff like that. So, so I still work on the side, you know, uh, I'm not like dedicating 40 hours a week to, well, yeah, maybe I am oh, some, course. some weeks I am working a lot. Definitely. There's, yeah, like I said, just a lot of, uh, organizational things, um, mm-hmm. and uh, practical things as well. Of course, building maintenance is a lot of stuff that, uh, of um, course, EPAL does sorry. does a bit, but then uh, the people who live there do most of the maintenance as well. No, sorry, I asked mostly because like I like having lived in a squad and having been involved with the scene for several years. Like you get to know many different people who live in the place for different reasons. That's why like it's also interesting to see like in what way living in this kind of open space allows you to develop your skills or get new ones. So in your case, it's more in management, like handling the politicians, whatnot. In case of Alec, for example, I want to hear about that because you're, I know for granted, you're more of an artist type. So how does that let you <laughs> yeah. develop your um, skill set? Uh, I think like there's, there's nothing that can equate to the amount of freedom that you have in a squad, in a squatted situation. So basically like, it's just like, it's like this constant kind of, uh, I don't know. I I want to I want to say battle, but it's not the right word. But like, you have this tension between like a struggle. Being, yeah, it's a sort of struggle between like doing something which is kind of like now at least inherently illegal, and but for that reason having the ability to do whatever you want. And I think when you compare it with studying, especially, it's like studying puts you like so much in a box. Like everything that you have to do has to go through like a higher authority or someone else it has to be checked. Like I see in lectures like the people who are supposed to be your teachers, like your mentors, like ask a question and everybody, even if they know the question kind of shrinks because they don't want to be put under that pressure. Institutionalization. Yeah. 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 And it's like... Institutionalization. Yeah. yeah. 
I think like the most beautiful thing that squatting teaches you is the art of just doing, of just like kind of like mm-hmm. taking that deep breath and being like, you know what, fuck it, I have this idea in my head, I'm gonna go and do it because there's no actual repercussions for it or the only repercussions for it is that you don't do it or you get in kind of worse trouble than you're already in, <laughs> so. Mm. Yeah, I see that in the mandrel, you're constantly doing a lot. Mm. So I imagine that requires a lot of skills and a lot of um, managing the time. How do you, how do you deal with that, David? Or what have you learned so far? Um, I couldn't manage to do studying, and I was studying arts and culture for five years before I um, got like involved with the the core team of the mandrel, and I had to I, I couldn't manage both because huh? I started taking on I, at some point I had two or three events a week, and you have to do them once they're on the schedule. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if um, artists or musicians are visiting, and uh, it was too much for me. But I think the the trick is to bring people to involve people as much as you can, people from outside, people that are interested in volunteers, mm-hmm. to show them that there's an opportunity there, and to try and make use of of this. Uh, power yeah. and all credit all credit to you and everyone at the mandrel like for the amount of and, and at the OBB as well the amount of events that you guys do and the amount of effort that it takes is like no one can truly fathom it until they've done it what it takes to just like even like organize a party that you think like yeah all you have to do is get beers and mm-hmm. find a sound system it turns into like so much which is yeah and I and I just want to <laughs> I just want to roll on on that real quick um are we offer all organic everything yeah at, at our at our joint you know and we really pride ourselves pride ourselves on this we we partner with local breweries and all that stuff you know i don't know how many other places in maastricht i don't, don't want to call it any names naming and shaming you know anyone mm-hmm. here in maastricht but uh well, complex you know, high <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and that's and that's coming all the way from from amsterdam you know i'm guessing or maybe there's some somewhat local breweries here but yeah getting back to the point yeah the amount of diversity especially the mandrel you guys are do it a fantastic job. I just want to say that fantastic. It's insane the amount, the the interdisciplinary events that you guys have have there. Wow, bravo! Seriously. Yes. Um, I think we will have a musical break in a second, but before that, well, unless Luna disagrees, do you disagree or do you agree? No, I think I think it's perfect timing. <laughs> okay, so uh, before that happens, I have one question though because it keeps popping up um, in relation to what are we talking about? Um, the question of authority, right? Because it's great to, to, to have all the artistic freedom and whatnot in a place. There is no one like above you, no landlord, whatnot. But wouldn't you say that there is still like a bit of a trace of authority in the places themselves, especially with Lambao Belang, since you are like pistol, pistol fingering me, John? Would so you like to elaborate, I'll, I'll Alec, hear, first, and then we are, yes? I want to hear what you guys have to say, because I think the, yeah, the Lambo Belong is a perfect example of this. And we were <laughs> kind of talking about it before, like, before we went. Tell me, um, because we haven't. <laughs> yeah, obviously, um, I think you find it, I don't want to say you find it everywhere <laughs> you go, <laughs> but um, I mean, you have to realize that the place is kind of big, right? And the amount of people that have, um, that have some kind of interest in the place is um like i don't even oh, know all of these people right and uh, but they come and go they have a, a space here um, atelier there they make their parties on friday in the kelder man i don't know um but they all they all gather in this one monthly meeting um, where they can kind of voice their concerns and their points um and 
Well, but who decides? Yeah. You, can I, can I just you emphasize here that these monthly meetings are like renowned throughout the kind of scene yeah, in Maastricht yeah, as being. Because I have experience <laughs> with those look, meetings look, too. These meetings are called Fritti's meetings because we serve fries um, <laughs> when you get there. So we thought that this would be better so the people at least have something in their stomach not to feel so bad <laughs> after, um, <laughs> <they get> rejected. <laughs> after like four hours of discussion. No, but I'm, I just mean, um, you know, there's, there's actually a lot of people that want to do a lot of things there and also the place is big you have the potential for most of them to you know to to realize their projects mm-hmm. but you you got to manage in some way um you know to 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 make sure that that progress is made and that not two people are discussing the same point you know for five hours in a row and the other ones are not heard mm-hmm. and yeah it's really complicated to you know unify this with the concept of not having authority in some sense or another is difficult. Would you say that everyone has a say and everyone everyone's opinion is taken um, with the same degree <laughs> of consent? Because before I was talking to John, for instance, and you mm. mentioned like, oh, because when I was applying to, to live at the LBB, I was talking to this one person and then this person was kind of lobbying around to like convince other people, which for me implies almost, like, okay, so you have some people who have um, more, more power of the dynamics and others or would you disagree with that yeah mm-hmm. i think in you i mean you have some formal um things that you go through if you apply for example you would go to the meeting mm-hmm. and you know say you want to live here and then uh, you get a trial period and something but then you also always have hidden power structures that's mm-hmm. for example maybe people that are more i don't know i want to say more extrovert they just talk more so they they have they take up more space of the conversation and therefore have a bigger say in the end mm-hmm. it's really really hard to avoid you know even if you formalize a non-hierarchical power structure it's still really difficult to avoid these hidden structures yes mm-hmm. and so yeah and then because you have so many people and places and initiatives they do appear here and there mm-hmm. And whatever kind of system you introduce, I think if not everybody acts in good faith, you can always find ways yeah, around absolutely. to manipulate the, the structure and the, mm-hmm. the guidelines, you know? So how mm-hmm. do you deal with this, uh, the mandrel, David? Um, well, it's... I don't know, it's, it's, it's tricky. When the first few months I was there, I, I felt uh, reluctant to give my opinion because there were people there who had a lot more experience than me. And I imagine now that there are similar... Uh, there were people in a similar position now. Mm-hmm. So in the sense, there is authority based on your experience, I think. Mm-hmm. But the actual organization is completely non-hierarchical. Mm-hmm. And in theory, if every decision should be consensus-based, so everybody should agree or, or disagree, and we should keep talking until that happens. And it can be difficult. It really relies on everybody respecting the space of the other people, not taking up too much conversation time. Like Albert said, if you if you're a person that's very assertive and authoritative you can really dominate the discussion and and leave other people out so it, it it's it's not the system itself but it's the um yeah it's really the the viewpoint of the people and, and how they deal with it mm. i think would you agree with what has been said alec uh, i agree completely with what has been said especially in regards to like especially 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 in regards to like strong extroverted people dominating discussions i feel like you almost need to despite being like what I like to imagine as being inherently anti-structuralist, like you almost have to put in place a structure to allow everybody to have an equal amount of voice, given that some people just naturally talk more or naturally, but like, yeah, it's a whole nother discussion. 
but yeah, at the at the bay, it's not really doesn't we don't really we don't really do anything outside of our, our walls. So in that sense, we just fight we just fight over dishes. So <laughs> there's no what dishes? We never heard of that here. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah. All right. So on the note of uh, structures and um, authoritarianism and uh, anarchism and so on, we're gonna play now against me. Uh, the song is called "Baby, I'm an Anarchist." Great song. And uh, now we're going to do a bit of a jump here. We were talking mostly about how squats work uh, within themselves. And now let's talk about how it goes with the public. So you throw a lot of events and people come in and they're not just to to be part of the event, but also organizing it and being volunteers. How does this work within each of you guys? And, uh, and then later on, maybe we can talk more about collaborations with other people, not just uh, individual volunteers, maybe. But let's start with no more volunteering people that come to the to the events. Maybe David, you've got something to say. Yeah. So for yeah. us, it relies a lot on our reputation. Actually, I can give an example of uh, we did the alternative intro week this year. Right? Mm -hmm. So we needed about I think twenty five to fifty volunteers in total to do mm -hmm. workshops and things, but also to clean and prepare stuff. 
and we just uh, put a call out sometime in the beginning of August or like end of July and a lot of people saw it thought it was a good idea we organized a meeting we had like 25 30 people and then we just discussed it and in the most non-hierarchical way possible so that everybody is free to you know give their their input mm-hmm. and uh, this time it worked really well like a lot of people were motivated they liked the idea but it really for me i think it depends on inspiring people with the the philosophy yeah? like they they, they like the the political aspect of what we're doing i think the most people so it's very important that we have that because if we didn't i don't know how we would get volunteers together to to organize anything mm-hmm. would you say it's similar at lbb or b32 even though you should don't throw that many events yeah yeah i think it's it's quite similar um i mean we really also rely on we really rely on volunteers uh, for all the things we do all the time um And if you ever feel like volunteering, mm-hmm. then just drop by of one of our events. Also, check out the food bank that was mentioned earlier by John. It's a really good starting point. And and then, you know, the people naturally come to the events and sooner or later they start helping out. And then and that's very natural development for me, I think. Yeah, that's how I got into it. I, just was, I was so impressed when I first went to the original Mandrill, to the jam session. They'd organized this without any um, profit motive. And I, I like the the crowd, and yeah, that's for me. That's that's what what hooked me to it. Yeah, just uh, one more thing on volunteers. Yeah, it's in- insane, right? The amount of volunteer hours that we are rolling with between the Land Babylon and the Mandrill, I feel like I can safely say we are giving the bulk of volunteer hours. Of course, th- there are many other beautiful um, organizations in Maastricht that offer volunteer opportunities. But just going through a couple of the of the organization um, things at the Land Bablong, for example, we have Adorfe Winkel, which is the, the swap shop, the giveaway shop, right? And people organize this, people work there, you know, meetings at the LBB, you know, at, at the Mandel, same with the Mandel, the time it takes to organize all this stuff, food bank and all this stuff, thousands and thousands and thousands of hours in one year. It's crazy. Also, not specifically on the t- in terms of like volunteers, but personally at the Bay, we have been super silent as far as any kind of event goes for months and months and months and months and months now. But that's not to say that we're not open to it. And I think it's the same for the Mantle and the LBB, that volunteering doesn't ne- necessarily have to be like rocking up and working with someone else or other people to make work towards some sort of event. But you can also come with ideas to any one of these places and just like knock on the door and say it because like that's what we're kind of here for is to open up and to give people the opportunity to have the space that they wouldn't usually have in a rented house or something. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. And that happens a lot with us. Yeah. yeah. So um, at the Beat 32 I know at some point we're throwing events organized by iArts or mm. yeah. So how is the process of that or is it any different when you're working with a sort of an institution? In so a, a lot of the time actually we do quite a few graduation shows at the B32 just because like the space that we actually have lends itself really nicely to being like an exposition space so in that sense we basically as a group kind of take a step back and hand it over to whoever's running it we also did like a couple of things with the love foundation and then some there's like a group called circus who is also with iarts who do some clothing swaps And basically what we do is be like, yes, feel free to use the space, try and be respectful for, to the fact that there's people living upstairs, which sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't. And then, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then like, uh, yeah, but then we basically let, let whatever 
person, group, organization have their way with it, for want of a better word. <laughs> you have something to add, David? Or because, or was he forcing the microphone on you? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, take it, take it. <laughs> I wanted to ask about like how how does it work then with yeah with these volunteers, right? Because you on one hand you keep saying that people can pop up at any time and do their thing, right? Propose their idea, whatnot, and at the, and they are all volunteers, right? Everyone does it like on their own like volition. Um, And at the same time, you do still have people who live in the place, right? So how does that work with the distinction of like, wh where is the borderline of like, you are the volunteer, of course, like when you're, you are living in a place, you clearly live there or you don't. But like, how does this flat structure or like lack of authority or like come into place when it comes to the, like dealing with all these people? Because it sounds like you have a lot of people passing through like all of the locations. But uh, again, do they have like the same amount of saying or are once they are here, they are subject to doing other people's bidding. Sorry, I just miss words right now. <laughs> yeah, so if I can uh, directly respond to that. Of course, there's a, some sort of structure, right? Mm -hmm. um, we have people who, who live at the Land Babylon. Mm -hmm. um, we have people who work very closely with us to um, develop the organization. And these people we refer to as key friends. And these people literally get a key to the Land Babylon. Okay. And uh, yeah, other... Volunteers are volunteering for very set uh, time periods and days, and for these projects, they are assigned a contact person, mm -hmm. and that is how they are into the building. And then we give them a briefing as to, okay, this building is humongous. Um, there's so much valuable stuff everywhere. Uh, you're not allowed to go certain places, and yeah, we have this type of agreement with all our volunteers. I know we talked about it before, and I agree there is always some authority needed, but don't you feel this is a bit of a elitist approach for places that are meant to be open cultural spaces? Like my, my question is because later on we, we are suddenly running short on time, but like one of the topics I wanted to raise is um, how do you guys think uh, cultural places uh, could actually work and like work towards like public to convince the public to convince the government that like they, they should actually exist because if you think of it in most cases like the counter argument of having them is the fact that people actually do live there and that's like the problem authority does have and that's often the problem public does have because on one hand you promote openness on the other hand that's well that's not necessarily the case not always right So do you think that it m would maybe benefit, like maybe, for example, Lambabalang or Manjul would have like much better chance at like existing if it was clearly no people living there and if it was just like an open space just for culture? Um, I don't think so. Nobody is living at the Manjul at the moment. Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. I did not mean Manjul by, by any way. I was it, referring to Lambabalang. For us, it's irrelevant, I think, that, that question, because the what I feel from having these meetings with the... Um, politicians, at, also EPAL, but also uh, politicians at the, the municipality. It's, it, that is not the issue. The issue is to do with regulations, first of all. Mm -hmm. That, that that's keeps coming up. Mm. That we don't have to abide by regulations that other companies have. And there, so mm. we have a, an unfair advantage, according to the VVD. And I think also this is a little bit ideological as well. I think the main parties in the government think that everything should be ordered and structured away according to this uh, capitalist commercial system that we have, and it should be for profit. Yeah. That's, for me, the, the, the big problem. It's not mm -hmm. they, they don't seem to have a problem with what we're doing. Mm -hmm. It's the way that we organize. Yeah, and it's about, uh, it's about really communicating clearly 
to these parties uh, what we're doing, right? Um, and of course, to do this means like a lot of uh, yeah gray areas. Uh, mm-hmm. But thankfully, you know, welcome to the Netherlands. You know, there's yeah, lots of Netherlands lots of gray areas really here. Gray, you know, yeah. like we have all these coffee shops, all this stuff. But um, the real point I'm trying to get to is that uh, you know it it really takes a yeah, communication and then also like a paradigm shift as well in, in your own thinking, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we do live in a neoliberal uh, economic uh, world in which we're saying, okay, do you work in this structured job and get paid this wage or whatever? And no one is looking at this very valid research from America that says one volunteer hour, the economic value of one volunteer hour is roughly 25 euros or $25, you know? Um, but then, you know, you got to package this into a pretty little uh, – you know, package for the vivid day or whatever, and then communicate the economic value of all these interdisciplinary events, um, the different partners that we're working with, you know, we have, uh, yeah, it is is a space and it does cost money to operate that space. And, and of course, to do that, we do need to make some difficult decisions sometimes. And that does mean, you know, maybe uh, having someone from the um, Alice's drama or from the um, Theater Academy or, or Dutch Dancing Days come in and use our gigantic hall to have this beautiful performance, you know. Mm-hmm. And of course, they do, you know, pay more than five euros to use that, you know. So what it seems to me is that people are being confronted with the idea of one trying to create a space that is free from certain regulations and that is mm-hmm. trying to go against a certain capitalistic culture and try to create it, its own thing going there and then in another case you've got something that's you kind of want your freedom but you still sort of is a step inside this capitalistic world and trying to find a way to merge and have a hybrid of some sort and uh and in, and then what most of people do just fall on fall within this capitalistic society right david you want to talk to yeah for yeah. me it's not about being anti-capitalist mm-hmm. it's about trying to provide on alternative form of organization mm-hmm. i think we've all come to the realization now that we can't continue in this like consumptionist mm-hmm. capitalist system that we have we, we cannot do that forever mm-hmm. there's disagreement about when we have to change but i think everyone understands that now mm-hmm. and we are offering an alternative way of organizing things and we're showing that we can still provide the services that a city should typically provide without the the profit incentive mm-hmm. and it, i'm not saying this is the best system or it should replace capitalism but we need to find a uh, uh, an environment but it where, should. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there should be an environment where these types of alternative um, forms of organization should be able, you know, people should be able to experiment with them and see how things can work. And so we don't have much time now, but I just want to throw this last question. So how or what what ways are you tr- discussing now? Or what, how do you think you can um, you can put up this different way of dealing with things? within the governments that we're in and within the society that we're in that have sometimes different regulations even though you have dialogues and you're trying to get to a common point somehow but how do these discussions evolve and where do you think it's going? Well they don't because we can't evolve because their position is we have to conform with the like the the system that's currently in place therefore we cannot provide an alternative system so that's for me there's no middle ground there you know. I also think that the the middle ground is tough because, I mean, there are people in the municipality that are that understand the idea, that even support it, and there's people who are really against it no matter what. And, you know, talking to the people who understand us already, you know, we don't gain anything more, and talking to the people who don't want to understand us is kind of useless. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really tough. For now... Um, 
<laughs> we are really thankful that the the tender that John has mentioned before um, that is meant to sell our building has actually been in place for uh, for many years, and the uh, the municipality tried to sell the building and it, it just didn't happen. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, because the situation around the building is very yeah, it's kind of difficult. So. Yeah. Because I was doing a bit of a research here and backgrounds of different squat situations and in most cases what it seemed to me that was happening is that you have a first A squad that starts doing cultural events and then there are some issues with the government and the government comes in and says, oh, let's make a deal. And at first the deal seems that it's quite good because they allow you to stay there, but at some point the agreement uh, comes to an end and then because you made that first agreement, you don't have much of a say on that and you kind of gain this paralytic state and you don't know how to follow through. And for me, what it seems like is that in this situation, squads tend to be take one of the two options. Either you um, submit and say, okay, I did what I could up until now and I cannot do anything else. Or I go back to my previous state and say, okay, I'm going to become that squad that's completely separate from that uh, government governmental entity. Which I think, uh, yeah, it's quite interesting. And for me, from what you were talking about before, David, it seems to me that the mandrel is in a similar situation now. Um, that we have to accept certain conditions? or No, to make the decision, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's also complicated by the fact that, that not all mm -hmm. squats are organised as cultural free zones. Eh? Yeah. There's a lot of squats in the city where people are just living there and doing yeah. whatever they're doing yeah. and not looking after the place. And So we are getting lumped in together with all... All yeah. squats, even though I think what we're doing is quite different. Yeah, the, unfortunately, we didn't have enough time to d go through all of that because indeed you have living squats and you have culture of uh, yeah. squats and you have even the anti crack and mm -hmm. so on, which maybe we can do another episode to discuss. Yeah, we should. Yeah. Can, I, <laughs> can I end on the one kind of positive aspect that I do see, um, especially now that um, the Mandrill is facing a contract end, mm -hmm. is that actually in between most of the squats that do make events, um, I feel that. Something I didn't feel before in, when I came to Maastricht or so much is that there's a lot of cooperation now and uh, mutual understanding. So we, what, we, what we try to do now is, you know, stand together mm. also um, in front of the municipality and whatnot and, you know, help each other out yeah. so that we can proceed in some way. Mm -hmm. yeah. yes. I think that's a okay, nice... <laughs> also, everybody, there's like a... Yeah, if for those of you who don't know the mantle, as you probably know it, as everyone who's probably listening to this now probably knows it, maybe not, <laughs> is coming to a, is going to go through some drastic changes. And so everyone should get together, I don't know when around, but you guys are having like one hell of a festival. Like yeah, last week, I think we'll, we'll organize a lot of events. Yeah. The last, last so, week. yeah. And um, yeah, everybody, everybody should come to that. And also, um, she would kill me if I didn't say it, but it's my mom's birthday today. So <laughs> happy birthday, mom. Happy birthday. <laughs> happy birthday. <laughs> and uh, yeah, let's just, on that note, let's do a bit more of a cultural agenda here. So tomorrow from half past seven until 11 p.m., there's going to be a film session and they're going to be screening Denial at Café Rosé. It's a free entrance, so go there and check it out. You can also type the name of the film on Facebook and the event's going to pop up. And also tomorrow, there is Skate Café at the LBB. Right, guys? Yes. That's right. Come on down. So it's going to be Pop tomorrow <laughs> from 9 to 1 at the LBB's Big Hall. And the idea is that the event is going to be a recurrent event every Thursday in between those times, okay. right? And that's free right. entry. Free entry. Free entry. And Robespierre the, on the the also tomorrow at the Mandrill. And a band from Paris are coming. And they're also playing on Friday at Food Bank as well. So if you miss mm -hmm. them tomorrow, you can see them at Food Bank. Perfect. On 
So you guys go check that out. And Light up next, we are going to be playing. What are we playing, Ruby? We're going to be playing Pete Seeger. What did you learn in school today? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that Washington never told a lie. I learned that soldiers seldom die. I learned that everybody's free. That's what the teacher said to me, and that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that policemen are my friends. I learned that justice never ends. I learned that murderers die for the crimes, even if we make a mistake sometime. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned our government must be strong. It's always right and never wrong. Our leaders are the finest men, and we elect them again and again. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that war is not so bad. I learned about the great ones we have had. We fought in Germany and in France, and someday I might get my chance. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. Hello, it's me again, and Luna taking over. And I just want to say thank you so much for RTV and Code 043 for supporting us. Without you, we wouldn't be here. So thank you so much. And, well, next week, uh, listen up, tune in, because we're going to have Shaban and Sachet discussing third culture kids. So don't miss that. And next up, before we fade you out, it's going to be Tear the Fascist Down by Woody Guthrie. There's a great and a bloody fight around this whole world tonight In the battle of bombs and shrapnel rain Hitler told the world around he would tear our union down But our union's gonna break them slavery chains And our union's gonna break them slavery chains I walked up on a mountain in the middle of the sky Could see every farm and every town I could see all the people in this whole wide world That's a union that'll tear the fascists down, down, down That's a union that'll tear the fascists down When I think of the men and the ships going down While the Russians fight on across the dawn There's London in ruins and Paris in chains Good people, what are we waiting on? Good people, what are we waiting on? So I thank the Soviets and the mighty Chinese vets, the allies the whole wide world around. To the battling British thanks, you can have 10 million Yanks if it takes them to tear the fascists down, down, down. If it takes them to tear the fascists down. But when I think of the ships and the men going down and the Russians fight on across the dawn, 
There's London in ruins and Paris in chains. Good people, what are we waiting on? Good people, what are we waiting on? So I thank the Soviets and the mighty Chinese vets, the allies the whole wide world around. To the battling British thanks, you can have 10 million yanks if it takes them to tear the fascists down, down, down. If it takes them to tear the fascists down. Ewald van Liemt met het radionieuws. De advocaat Philip Schol, die vanochtend op straat bij zijn huis in de Duitse grensplaats Gronau werd neergeschoten, deed als curator een aantal grote faillissementzaken. Er wordt nu onderzocht of zijn werk het motief is voor de liquidatiepoging, zoals de orde van advocaten het noemt. De 43-jarige Schol werd beveiligd omdat hij al een tijd bedreigd werd. Hij ligt nu zwaar gewond in het ziekenhuis, maar verkeert niet in levensgevaar. Minister Grapperhaus heeft via de orde van advocaten zijn betrokkenheid getoond. Defensieminister Bijleveld moet in december komen getuigen in de zaak over het faillissement van reisorganisatie OAD in 2013. Ze wordt dan onder